Welcome to a special episode of Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, this week on the show, we covered the COVID crisis in India, which is currently the world's worst outbreak. And, and the scale and the nature of the tragedy is, is almost unfathomable. Uh, but we we didn't cover everything that we wanted to talk about. It's such a complicated and such an important issue that we wanted to dedicate a, a special episode to it. And so today we brought on Congressman Ro Khanna, who is the vice chair of the House India Caucus, to talk about what he's seeing and, and what he understands about the crisis and how to think about what the U.S. can do to alleviate the suffering in India and in other countries uh, outside of our borders. Congressman, uh, it's really great to have you on. It's great to be on. Thank you for having me. I want to start off by just sort of asking you, like we we all know just by reading the headlines and, and looking at what's going on in the world that things look bad in India, but you know, you're a member of government, you pay really close attention to stuff. From from your point of view, just just how bad does it look? They're horrific. Uh, in my lifetime, I've never seen anything like that. I mean, I have family uh, in India uh, who was affected. My dad's cousin, unfortunately, passed away. And I know every Indian American who has someone uh, who couldn't get oxygen, couldn't get to a hospital bed, uh, who has been affected. It is a tragedy of uh, unbelievable uh, scale. And uh, I am so glad that uh, we've now responded in a big way. You've seen the president and Secretary Blinken mobilize oxygen concentrators. That's the biggest need. You've seen the private sector starting to mobilize and the Indian American diaspora starting to mobilize. And then the president made a very courageous decision to say we're going to share the IP, the vaccine formulas, so that countries like India and 100 other nations can develop their vaccines. I want to get into the IP waiver in a minute, because uh, I think that's a really interesting, rich topic. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the causes of the problem in India, right? So you're talking about oxygen shortages. And to me, that that seems to a degree like a governance problem. Like there was a degree of unpreparedness. I, I, this is not a matter of blaming the victim so much as trying to understand, right? Is there, has the Modi government in some way failed its citizens when it comes to the response to the outbreak? Yes. I mean, that's, I think, a factual truth at this point. Uh, there were still mass rallies going on and a sense that the pandemic was in the rearview mirror that turned out not to be the case. And I think there was too much of a uh, overconfidence uh, in India that they had defeated the, uh, the the vaccine. Second, there was not enough preparation in building a vaccine capacity or in preparing hospitals or oxygen supplies uh, because uh, people didn't anticipate uh, the depths of the crisis. So uh, obviously, uh, there was a, a failure of preparation, much like there there was a failure of preparation during the uh, Trump years. To what extent is that a product of a degree of ideological affinity, right? So you've seen similar patterns with populist right leaders under Trump, as you mentioned, Modi in India, Jared Bolsonaro in Brazil is perhaps the most vigorous COVID denier in public office anywhere in the world. So is this, is this a function, the crisis that we're seeing right now? of a particular ideolo- a particular ideological tendency's ascendance? Or is there something very specific about you know, Indian political economy and society 
that led to the crisis? Or is this a false binary and there are elements of both that brought us to the point that we're at right now? It's a thoughtful question. I, I don't think that the Modi government is analogous to Trump or Bolsonaro in that when the crisis initially happened, uh, Indi the Indian government shut down India and they took the COVID uh, crisis very seriously. I think the mistake in India was an overconfidence that they had defeated it, a sense that uh, India was uh, on the right track, that they had handled this well, and a failure to appreciate the risks of a second wave. So it was not the blatant denial of science that you saw in the Trump administration or, or with Bolsonaro as much as uh, an unpreparedness for a second wave. Right. And that points to a, a broader global problem, right? Because it is India now, right? India is the epicenter of the COVID outbreak. But there could be any number of other countries that aren't very well vaccinated, especially in the global south, that could get another pandemic of, of explosive proportions, right? One of the problems we've seen in India is that government statistics are seemingly insufficient because of the lack of state capacity in especially rural areas. So not only do we you know, not have an effective response because we don't know where everybody is, but we don't have the testing capabilities to be able to isolate hotspots as they come up in India and get treatment in the right places subsequently to that. Uh, which makes me wonder, right, like is is the rest of the world not prepared for this to for this to happen again? Are people taking the lessons of what we're seeing in India right now seriously enough? It should be a wake-up call. I mean, you see that this could happen in any country. In fact, it did happen in Great Britain. The difference was that uh, when it happens in a country like India that doesn't have the same healthcare system, that doesn't have the same uh, vaccine uh, preparedness, that doesn't have the same oxygens, it can be an extraordinary disaster. But these second waves have happened in a number of countries. And this should be uh, a rallying call for uh, the world that, A, we need to help with the vaccine production and distribution to get more countries vaccinated. We need to figure out how we help with global manufacturing supply. Uh, and three, we need to uh, really have some greater preparedness on oxygen concentrators, on uh, critical medical supply. It's really a failure, frankly, of the World Health Organization, too, that a year and a half into this pandemic, we don't have a better organizational structure to get critical PPE or oxygen to, to countries when they face a situation like this. Yeah, though part of that, I imagine, is just a failure of member states, right? It, it was not impossible to anticipate that this would happen in India, right? There were models last year that suggested India would be really hard hit if there were to be a serious and sustained outbreak. And while the initial, as you say, the initial quarantine, which was very, very harsh, did manage to stop that, not without human costs, but still did manage to stop an initial outbreak, it, it clearly happened eventually, right? Like this was predictable and predicted. And yet it seems that especially the world's wealthy countries were completely unprepared for something like this in a country like India. There was unpreparedness. And I do think it it's partly a psychological issue in that there was enormous pride in India that finally, after uh, 70 plus years of independence, after hundreds of years of colonialism, India had emerged on the world stage. India was rising. India was ascendant. 
and India was actually going to be helping other nations deal with this. And I think part of the slowness, part of the reluctance to acknowledge the seriousness and the gravity of the threat was this branding and self-conception of India's own role uh, in the world. And I think it should point to a broader issue that uh, obviously any nation wants to have pride in, in, in their own rise, but it should not mask structural inequalities on health, on education, uh, many of which still exist in India, as Amartya Sen and others have been writing about. Right, yeah. I mean, Sen's writing on Kerala versus other parts of uh, India is, I think, particularly revealing on that point, right? Like you have state-level development and that is, in some cases, much more impressive in parts of India than others and much more egalitarian. But it it also seems like there's been some significant steps backwards in recent years, right? So demonetization uh, is, is a good example. The Modi government tried to uh, reduce the country's use of, of hard physical currency and replace it with electronic payments, which turned out to be somewhat of a disaster in a lot of uh, areas of India where technology just isn't as prevalent as it is in, you know, a, a large city. So it, it strikes me that there's also been an inattention to, to the poor of late in India from the center that has helped create the conditions through which this outbreak could really uh, rampage through the country. Well, I'm very impressed that you uh, have read and are familiar with Sen's work, but I think that the, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that the basic uh, uh, a point that Sen has been making is uh, dead on, which is that you just have a f- massive underinvestment in public education and public health, and the you know the demonetization policy. Uh, I agree, didn't work out, but at least there was some effort there to try to get rid of the black money, the money that wasn't uh, being taxed. But whatever one thinks of demonetization, the reality is, and this is it goes beyond Modi, it's, it's been a criticism that Sen has had an accurate one for 20 to 30 years, is just there's been an underinvestment in that uh, public infrastructure, uh, in health, in education. And, and I think the COVID crisis reveals this. I mean, one of the uh, the the things that people don't talk enough about in India is that there're just not enough hospitals. There are not enough hospital beds. Uh, the uh, in fact, I was talking to a very prominent philanthropist, and he was saying, "Look, right now I'm funding oxygen to go to India, but the long run uh, need there is is more hospitals in places." And so, my hope is that one thing that will come out of this is a uh, in, in a serious attention to the economic inequality and, and a focus on uh, the, the poor and the needs of uh, the broader public and a recognition that that does not mean that India has to give up its identity of pride, that it can have both, uh, and that masking over inequality is not the way to pro- project strength on the world stage. There's a, a sort of disturbing or troubling irony in the point that you just made about infrastructure. Because it's true that India's really, really, really hard hit in terms of hospital beds right now, right? There, there are reports of people just lying on the floor in hospitals, patients who have COVID, right, who just can't have beds because there aren't enough. But at the same time, the infrastructure in India for vaccine manufacturing is really impressive. India's exported and, and manufactured a pretty tremendous percentage you know, relative to the amount that it's administered domestically 
of vaccines globally. And what does that say about the character of development and and inequality in India right now, that it's, it's capable of this feat of advanced technological manufacture while simultaneously incapable of dealing with the same general health crisis through its normal healthcare system? Well, it shows that there's stark inequality in uh, India's economic development. On the one hand, it's uh, really advanced its space program. It's advanced in technology. It's produced extraordinary entrepreneurs. Uh, It has produced uh, the generic drug industry, uh, which the entire world, including the United States, has benefited from. And and there is an enormous amount of collaboration as a market uh, with the United States. On the other hand, there is still deep, persistent poverty. There are still huge swaths of the country that uh, don't have economic dignity. Now, in fairness, the challenges of India are very hard. I mean, it is it was a colonized nation for 200 years. It gained independence in 1947. And uh, it's a population of 1.3 billion, uh, where many still don't have Uh, a a basic education. So any government there uh, faces broad challenges. But I think Sen's point, and this is why, you know, I mean, I think he's one of the most brilliant thinkers along with Rawls and Habermas of the 20th century, late 20th century. But the key point he makes is that the economic development of health and uh, of education is directly correlated to democracy and that the systematic underinvestment in India of uh, education, of infrastructure, of health, is because those populations aren't as represented in the democratic process. And so you see the uh, there, there, it's undoubtedly India needed to have more investment in that. And Sen's point is, if for that to happen, they also need greater liberal democracy uh, so that those voices aren't marginalized from society. Right. That's why one of his famous books is called Development as Freedom. It's, it's, it's part of what's called a capabilities approach to thinking about freedom. Yes, no, I mean, everyone should read it because, I mean, his point, and it's true in the United States too, to a lesser extent, but Sen's whole point is, you know, freedom is not just the government not putting you in prison or the government not restricting your speech. Uh, what freedom do you have to flourish and live up to your potential if you don't have basic nutrition, if you don't have basic healthcare, if you don't have education? Uh, and that really... Is, is freedom, and he expands on roles as idea of primary goods, and he says it's not sufficient just to have uh, economic goods. What you really need is the capability, he and Martha Nussbaum talk about, of, of having true flourishing. And, and I think it's not just a philosophical approach, because what Sen is basically saying is, you, if you want to be a free country, a real democracy with freedom, you need to have investments in education and health. And I think what he would say in the American context is when you have 53% of the federal budget on defense instead of education and health, uh, are you really doing enough to cultivate the freedom uh, in the United States for all citizens? India is a really fascinating country to think about through that lens, right? Because one of the remarkable early successes of Indian democracy was the the development of the Electoral Commission, uh, which, you know, it's not an easy task to administer democratic elections in a country that's so big, and especially at its outset, was so poor and so heavily rural. Yet from from very early on, from the very first post-independence elections, the Elections Commission has been one of the most respected and admired and effective 
uh, institutions in Indian society, right? It, and it has helped foster the kind of inclusive development you're talking, right? The infrastructure of democracy itself has been necessary to create the expansion of an Indian state that has benefited large swaths of the population, even if it hasn't done as much as it could have potentially, right? People get represented, they get a voice, there are policies that are designed to favor the scheduled castes, as they're termed in India, which is the the sort of lower castes and the traditional hierarchy, designed to benefit women and so on and include them in the political process. Uh, but, you know, the thing that bothers me thinking about that as I say it is that there have been really credible allegations, including in the recent elections in West Bengal, of the Elections Commission, you know, favoring one side, that is to say the BJP, the ruling party. And it makes me wonder to what extent we can talk about the, the current COVID-induced crisis as part of a general drift away from inclusive, effective policymaking in India towards institutions being captured by political interests and wealthy interests that uh, are sort of undermining the, the foundational promise of the Indian state. Well, I believe one of India's greatest achievements was becoming a liberal democracy post-independence. And of course, I have a direct stake in that as my grandfather, Amarnath Vidyalankar, was uh, part of the Gandhi's independence movement. He was in jail for four years in the 1940s as part of uh, Gandhi's Quit India movement. I, and, I didn't know that. That's remarkable. And uh, and he, be, he then became one of the first members of parliament in, uh, in India's first uh, parliament. And you had there a ideal that Gandhi obviously had and Nehru had of a India that was pluralistic, an India that would have uh, a liberal democracy. Arguably, they made some economic mistakes uh, and, and did not have a sufficient role for markets, but that was in part because of their fear of colonialism, of uh, uh, colonialism being linked to the East India Company. But you saw, I think, a... Uh, an extraordinary achievement in uh, in in the Indian uh, Constitution by Ambadkar, who of course Ambadkar is uh, famous for uh, being against caste, and he helps write India's Constitution in a way of radical equality, not uh, uh, not just uh, liberal democracy, but also uh, against caste and for healthcare and for education. In fact, if you read the Indian Constitution, uh, they promise a lot. I mean, they obviously haven't. It's hard to implement it, but it's one of both negative and positive liberties. And by and large, I would say that the Indian experiment of democracy has been pretty exceptional. You've had huge voting participation. You've had an ability to have different diverse fates participate. Uh, and even uh, uh, with the rise of, of Modi, you've still seen elections in many places. You've seen the Modi government lose in many places. But obviously, those of us who care about liberal democracy have been concerned about uh, the current government in places where it has hurt pluralism, where it has hurt internet expression, and in places where you talk about that there has been uh, the capture of even uh, election boards and in a compromise in, in certain areas. I still believe overall uh, it is an impressive achievement as a democracy, but uh, we should be vigilant as to, to the threats. And frankly, though, you know, just like we were vigilant in the United States, I mean, you could argue what, what Trump did was a huge challenge to some of our democratic institutions. Right. One point that you just raised, 
maybe this is getting too much into the weeds of, of Indian constitutionalism, but I found it really interesting during the COVID crisis, is that you've had the Supreme Court order the central government to supply medical oxygen to Delhi in, in a certain number, right, a particular amount, 700 metric tons. It's really interesting to hear a court taking such an active role in crisis management. That's not how it would work in the United States, right? And I wonder, and this is really me speaking out of my area of expertise, so I'm curious, like, I would wonder how much of that is related to these positive guarantees of rights in the Indian Constitution that you were just talking about, right? And whether that's an innovation the U.S. could actually learn from, right? Having a more expansive slate of economic rights, economic and, and social rights guaranteed by political institutions constitutionally. Well, it's a fascinating question. And, and Bruce Ackerman's book on world constitutions uh, is, is worth reading uh, on precisely this issue. But it's, it's interesting that India's constitution is written uh, in 1947, right after the Great Depression, after the World Wars. And FDR talks uh, about famously about the Economic Bill of Rights, saying that it's not enough for the United States to just have a Bill of Rights about what the government is restricted from doing. The government needs to actually help uh, provide the basic necessities that allow for freedom, that you can't have for true freedom if you don't have your health, if you don't have education. And so India uh, adopted some of these positive rights within its constitution. India, for, in, in India, there is the view that if you don't have health care, if you don't have uh, education, uh, then it, you aren't truly a free person, that the state has that obligation. Now, people who have studied India, though, uh, will say that that's a lot of uh, promises which haven't, which the government often hasn't delivered on, uh, and you know that you, you so you have a, a a positive, in some sense, legal tradition, but perhaps a lot to be desired on the implementation. Speaking of, I want to turn a little bit to the U.S. policy response to the implementation. You've been, uh, until recently, fairly critical of the Biden administration's refusal to waive or at least support waiving intellectual property rights when it comes to vaccines so they could be manufactured more readily in places like India. What took them so long to come around to your point of view? I'm glad they did. Uh, let me just say this is the first time in my life I felt representation really matters. Uh, having uh, Raja and Pramila and myself and Amibera vocally talking about the need to intervene in India because we had uh, heard so many of the stories from the Indian American community, I think raised the stakes. And then having us out there uh, advocating, not just for India, but for all the other countries, that we need to have a waiver of, of the IP, uh, I think had an actual impact with the administration. Look, the politics are hard. I got tremendous amount of pressure from Silicon Valley, uh, from people who've supported me, saying, why are you supporting this waiver? And uh, these companies are very, very possessive of their IP. It's important for listeners to know that no one is talking about giving the, the IP away for free, but we should just be factual. Pfizer didn't invent this vaccine. The, the vaccine was invented by a Turkish couple, and the United States guaranteed $2 billion to Pfizer uh, for the production of the vaccine. So they got government help, and the, the Turkish couple will probably win the Nobel Prize. Now, the Turkish couple then basically, with Pfizer, split up the world. They said, we will supply to Turkey and Germany. Someone else will supply to China. And Pfizer, you get to supply to the rest of the world. And Moderna got its IP from the NIH. 
what happened is Moderna and Pfizer both had numerous contractors come to them and say, just give us the vaccine uh, recipe. We're we'll willing to pay you for it. We're willing, willing to license it so we can develop the vaccine in our countries. And Pfizer and Moderna repeatedly said no. They refused to engage in the voluntary licensing contracts. Had they done that, you wouldn't even need a waiver, but uh, they refused to engage in voluntary licensing. The waiver simply says now they must engage in licensing and compulsory licensing. They still would get paid, uh, and this will incentivize to them to engage in voluntary licensing at the very least. And it's important to uh, I- explode, to defeat the myth that the manufacturing capacity isn't there. The Moderna, one of the chief scientists there said, within three to four months, if you have the vaccine formula, you can set up manufacturing for Moderna around the world. And a lot of these governments have said they have the manufacturing cap- capability. They need the tech transfer. Uh, a lot in there I want to talk about. But first, I want to I want to push you a little bit on what was going on inside the White House, right? You know, you mentioned that you were working really hard to, to convince them. I've seen some reports from inside the White House, not firsthand sources, but things that I've read in the popular press about the, the president's stance on issues relating to global justice, things like uh, letting in refugees, uh, in terms of exporting vaccines, which they were slow to do too, where the, the president or political officials in the White House have been really hesitant. They've been, it sounded like almost afraid of a kind of nationalist backlash, you know, the sort of Trumpian America first type policies. And I've criticized them for this publicly. I'm wondering to what extent when you were working on you and your colleagues uh, in the India caucus were working on this, to what extent you encountered that kind of sentiment uh, while you were trying to uh, change their policy on IP? What we saw is a split in the administration. I think that there were a lot of people, particularly the president's uh, foreign policy advisors, uh, who understood that this was the right decision to have a waiver, who understood that this is uh, both from a perspective of uh, justice uh, and human rights, but also America's uh, role in the world, uh, the right thing to do. Uh, I believe that there were people in the president's political orbit who uh, understood the political pressure that he would face. And there was a concern, look, we are so dependent on Pfizer and Moderna for our boosters, for making sure that we are uh, having uh, additional vaccine supply, which we may need every year, uh, that there was a concern that we really need these uh, these companies to partner and they have an extraordinarily powerful lobby. Uh, so my sense is that this was a decision where there were a lot of people who believed we have to do the right thing, but the president knew that there would be a significant political cost. I give him, give him great credit. I mean, I think on this issue, he showed political courage, and I think he showed a lot of political cover, courage on Afghanistan, where I know he overruled a lot of generals. Uh, and so, you know, I, I give him credit on both of those decisions. So let me talk about the sort of opposite view, right? Because, you know, my my own inclination is, why didn't they do more faster? But there are a lot of smart people who think that waiving IP protections is, if not uh, exactly a step backwards, not at the very least not good enough in terms of addressing the crisis that's going on in India. The argument is basically not that, and I'm, and I'm sure you've heard this, right? I'm just sort of summarizing this for listeners. Uh, and there's a good piece by my colleague Kelsey Piper about these arguments that that you can read on the site. But it's that it's not a question of manufacturing capacity in the sense of there not being enough, you know, literal factories in other countries. It's that there's a a lack of raw materials of the capacity to get raw materials to those factories uh, that 
will makes it very difficult for even if the technology is transferred for uh, a factory in India to start making, let's say, the Moderna vaccine, right? So there are rare materials like Chilean tree bark, which I did not know until I was researching this conversation was a really essential part of the vaccine manufacturing process as we've designed it. But like you have to get that stuff and you have to get it to other places. So you could make an argument that the U.S. waiving or supporting waiving IP protections is like a nice gesture, but unless we're willing to step up and make sure that enough of these materials are getting distributed around the world, it won't end up having much of much of an effect on the the actual situation on the ground in India. Well, I think it's a necessary but not sufficient uh, issue. I mean, I would recommend uh, Joseph Stiglitz at an op-ed where he talked about how the Moderna chief chemist says that it would be three to four months to get the mRNA line up if we have tech transfer. Other countries have talked about uh, about a billion doses of unused capacity from vaccine ma- manufacturers, meaning they have the capacity to build it. Uh, the question of raw materials is there. And I, uh, I agree that that is a limiting factor, uh, but my sense is they have enough raw materials to do more than they're currently doing, uh, which was a restriction of IP. And then we do have to uh, look at how we get the, the raw materials without compromising uh, our own uh, supply. I mean, I don't think there is any problem with prioritizing Americans. I think in, in philosophy or moral philosophy or ethics, it's perfectly fine to say we care about our family first and then our communities and then our nation. But we don't, uh, we can't just be totally indifferent to the rest of the world. And so I think the, the question is, what can we do in terms of raw materials uh, which won't compromise Americans, uh, but will allow uh, other countries to develop their vaccines? Thank you for raising that philosophical question about how to think about obligations towards foreigners, because I I actually think this is the most fundamental question in American foreign policy going forward, right? Like, to what extent we're willing to revise the traditional, very strong bias towards American interests and American citizens. And, you know, that's really, really clearly on display in this conversation. And one thing that I think gets sort of muddled in here is there's, there's, there's sort of a false binary right, between America first and let's get rid of all borders and let anyone anywhere become a citizen, which, you know, actually I think is a defensible idea, but it's not in the conversation in the United States right now. Uh, And so there's no nuanced discussion of what kinds of obligations, and I mean obligations in a strict moral sense, right, the U.S. does have towards the welfare of foreigners in the context of a crisis like India's. Like, it seems to me we should be doing a lot more than we are, and we're limited by the fact that we see there, we see some kind of zero-sum trade-off between American interests and foreign ones, where there's not, right? There's there's a duty that's owed there that we can fulfill without necessarily sacrificing our own vaccination campaign, given the stores we have of different vaccines. So how— how do you think about this as a member of government, somebody elected by American citizens, but obviously feels a keen sense of obligation towards foreigners who are suffering? Well, it's a profound question, and it's uh, why I don't like making just the argument, oh, we ought to help India or help uh, Mexico or Brazil because there could be a variant that comes and, uh, and defeats the vaccine in the United States. That's true, but that's the easy case. I mean, it's not that America should just act when it's in our self-interest. I mean, obviously it is. But I think there is a deeper question which you raise is what is our moral obligation? And my view is 
we do have a, a moral obligation as a nation founded on the view that every person is endowed with their creator with certain inalienable rights. Uh, those rights don't cease to exist when you leave the American border. Those, uh, the dignity of individuals is independent on being born in the United States. That doesn't mean that we can't be a nation with borders that prioritizes uh, the needs of our nation and our community. But it means that we have to have some moral obligation uh, to people outside. Uh, at the very least, we ought to have an obligation uh, not to harm them, which is, you know, what sometimes our foreign policy has done, like when we supported the Saudi uh, bombing in Yemen. So at the very least, we ought to have a moral obligation of not commission and injustice. One could argue that a refusal to uh, license vaccines was actively harming people in the other parts of the world. But then the question, the, the, the more difficult question is, what, what is our positive obligation? And here, uh, if you permit me, because you could edit it out if it's too long, uh, there is a brilliant passage by uh, Adam Smith in, in, in uh, Wealth of uh, Nations where he says, you know, every person would be more concerned about their uh, toe aching than they would be about some famine in China of uh, hundreds of thousands dying. That's just human nature. But that's not good enough for uh, making policy because people are rational creatures and what it means to be human, what it means to be moral is we don't just go with our instinct that our toe ache matters more than hundreds of thousands dying. It means that we can reason to a point that we ought to care more about hundreds of thousands dying over our toe ache. And so the question is for America to be a moral nation, what is the rational obligation we have in cases of extraordinary suffering like India? And I think what we are doing in terms of getting oxygen there, getting uh, economic aid there, making sure that we're helping with manufacturing vaccines is what it means uh, to be a moral nation. And it is uh, still consistent with our prioritizing our own, uh, our own nation and people. Right. It strikes me that there's something fundamental about this to the conception of a liberal society, right? Like if you, as you say, you take as a premise that all people are in some sense created equal or deserve a certain sense or a certain amount of equal moral standing, it's very difficult to explain why that should be limited to people inside a particular set of geographic borders, right? Why does it matter if you were arbitrarily born in one country than the other. Like, these are boundaries, these are lines that people drew, ultimately. And it doesn't strike me that there's an obvious greater significance to me because somebody is, you know, they live three streets down from me in D.C. than they live in Calcutta or Bombay, right? I, I don't know them personally in either case. Uh, we may have some shared bonds in the American case, but ultimately, right, it seems like if we're to take the principle of moral equality seriously, then we should really be taking the interests of that hypothetical person in Calcutta or Bombay a lot more seriously than we are right now. Well, let me say this. I mean, I think we ought to have some moral consideration. I don't. I do think community can have moral weight, right? So I care and do a lot more for my kids than I do for other kids. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm oblivious to other kids, but I don't think that there's any problem with me uh, caring first about my family or my rooting for the 49ers or rooting for the Warriors to, to win as part of my community or my rooting for America to win as part of my, my, my broader community. So I do think you could give moral weight to 
uh, community and to the value of that uh, communal unit, whether that's a family, whether that's a city, whether that's a nation. But I don't think uh, that, and, and there are people who would disagree with me on that. I mean, there are people who believe just purely in cosmopolitanism. I I don't I, in that way. I mean, I think that the there is moral weight to a community. But what I what I think is that moral weight to a community or a nation uh, doesn't allow us to be totally indifferent to the obligations to the broader. So it's it, no one would say, okay, I care only about my family, and I don't really care if uh, other kids get uh, no toys during the holidays or Christmas. Well, most of us have an inclination to help uh, in many ways, people in our broader community and broader nation. And I think that obligation should extend somewhat to, to the rest of the world. And actually it does in America. I think as a people, we're very empathetic and generous. That hasn't always translated into our policy and was a huge step back with the Trump America first rhetoric. Yeah, it, you know, it. you don't have to be as extreme a cosmopolitan as I am, and you aren't clearly, in order to believe that there's a real gap between even sort of minimal obligations of care towards foreigners and what the actual policy output has been, right? If you look at the number of vaccines the U.S. has exported compared to the number that we've had in the United States in this context, it, it's really minuscule. And even compared to what other countries have exported, right? And, you know, there's a defensible case that the U.S., I think uh, an unusually defensible case in the context of global justice, that the U.S. had a really, really bad outbreak. And so even if you're sort of weighting all people's interests equally, it made a lot made a lot of sense to prioritize a vaccinated campaign in the U.S. and other wealthy countries where, surprisingly, the outbreak has been particularly bad. But now we're at a point where we've got a lot under control, and I, I just don't see a clear plan going forward for how we're going to ramp up domestic production for export purposes. I mean, maybe you're hearing something I'm not, but it seems that fulfilling these obligations to places like India and preventing the next India from happening requires us to, to take a much more concerted set of steps than it looks like we're ready to do right now, or at least plan to do right now. I do think we have to focus on global manufacturing. I mean, I understand and support the administration's view that we ought to be first prioritizing domestic manufacturing for domestic needs, both because we have populations, as you know, who have not been vaccinated and we're going to still need to, to get them vaccinated. That, I do think, is the president's first priority. We're going to need boosters. We're going to need uh, other uh, reserve uh, capability. And so... If there's a sense that uh, some of these companies are stretched and they want to first focus on American manufacturing, I not only do I think that the president is right, I actually think that's a morally defensible position. But that doesn't answer your broader question, which is, well, what are we doing then to help manufacturing in other parts of the world? And don't we have an obligation? Until recently, we didn't even give the IP waiver. It should have been done months ago. Uh, and so that, in in my view, was a mistake. Now that we've done that, we, we need to push for it. Because if you read uh, Catherine Tai's statement, it's very carefully worded, saying this could be a long, drawn-out process that may need to come to consensus. So we need to continue to push to say this has to get done, not just that we've put this out and it's going to get done four months, five months from now. And then I do think we ought to take the lead in saying, uh, you know, the president, it would be amazing if president uh, with Secretary Blinken convened an international summit and had leaders from 
developing con countries there and said, okay, what do we need to do to help global manufacturing? What do we need to do to help manufacturing in your countries so that you can, for the purposes of the vaccine? And then we took the lead in supporting that and asked our allies to support that as a matter of something in the world's interest, but as a, also a matter of America taking uh, moral leadership. Representative Kano, this has been an awesome conversation. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I've really... Uh, I've really enjoyed talking to you about this unfortunately terrible situation, and I, I do hope that some of what you're just describing comes to pass. So, so thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you. And I'll, uh, I'll let Amartya Sen know he'll be uh, very happy that you, his work has uh, uh, influenced and read by, by someone like you. So he's, some, he's someone I deeply admire, and, uh, and I, I'm impressed by, that you've read Development is Freedom. I, I just love his work. It's actually been really influential in my own thinking and, and obviously yours. So I guess uh, you and I can be can have our intellectual crushes on Amartya and his work. Wonderful. <laughs>